You're listening to the Spuddy Dude Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. I'm Zach Joyner, your friendly neighborhood webmaster of, of the website that powers this very podcast, the executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. As always, we have to thank our patrons that help support the website and the podcast network over on patreon.com slash Network. Patrons such as Allison, Cindy, Ed, Georgia, Greg, Janelle, Jessica, Jurgen, Catherine, Kale, Laura Howard, Lump Moose, Master Dramon, Phoenician, Scott, Vanessa, Vicky, Winnipeg Webhead, Greg, Lisa, UltimateFangirl.exe, Kigar, Sarah Petzel, Scott McGraw, Sebastian, and Vinkman. Thank you guys for your support over on Patreon.com slash Network. If you have not checked out our other fine shows on the network, we have Clone Soccer Chronicles and Spectacular Radio. We have ASM Classics, this show, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles Podcast, Spidey Dude Experience and Make Mine Mayday. The Spidey Dude Experience is the flagship show on the network now. And we also have a show within a show, just like this show, with the Slot Symposium. This show has the Web of Music show that if you've not already checked out those episodes here on this feed, you should definitely do so. They're a lot of fun. Once again, I want to thank Chris for hosting and uh, thank you for supporting the website and leave us that five-star review. Let us know how we're doing here on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. With that, I turn it over to Chris. Welcome back to Web of Music on the Spidey Dude Radio Network as we round out our coverage of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy of scores and soundtracks. I'm Dr. Chris from the Spectacular Sal Basema Era podcast. Joining me is composer Lito Velasco. Take a bow. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we are ending our Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, but slightly different than how we started it, as uh, there is some uh, some history with this soundtrack collection. This sco- and it, well, sorry, this score, this score has never been released officially. It uh, it can't apparently, or it, maybe it can one day if you know stuff gets worked out between people. But uh, as of right now, the score is not available. And uh, Leto has some information about why the Spider-Man 3 score is not available on CD and, you know, probably won't get a, you know, maybe in 2000, what, what, what were you in? Okay, maybe in 2027 when the 20th anniversary of the film comes around, things will be different. But, you know, who's to say? That's still four years from now. And next year we will possibly be getting a Spider-Man 2 from, uh, from, the, from La La Land Records, so... Yeah, we can cross our fingers for that. I can see that happening. I, I don't know. With Spider-Man 3, it's it's one of those kind of messes where it's like there are so many people involved in the creation of it that I just don't know if it's ever going to come out. You know, And there was, there was a lot of political kind of stuff going on behind the scenes because of the falling out between Danny and Sam Raimi. And then, you know, Chris Young was brought in to 
you know, do the entire film because he had done tracks on Spider-Man 2 and Sam was very thrilled with the work that he did and they worked together on another project. And so it's one of those things where, you know, even after I think Chris was finished, supposedly the studio wasn't satisfied with some of his work, so they brought in John John Debney and Deborah Lurie to do additional work. So I don't know if that's necessarily the case. If you research this film, there are a lot of stories. There, There's a lot of information out there, but it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, is anybody actually telling the truth? Are we ever really going to know what happened? So I'm imagining it's it's not just a rights issue. It's also just, you know, a political, nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings and people are angry and, you know, hopefully people have let go of it by now, but who knows. The behind the scenes of Spider-Man 3 has been pretty public for a while now that it was just a mess production and, you know, Sam only wanted to do Sandman and end Harry's storyline finally. But, right. you know, and maybe set up Venom for another film or something. Not do Venom at all in this film. You know, he his, it looks like his plans for Spider-Man 4 were supposed to be Vulture and Black Cat. No indication of a Venom. Maybe Venom was supposed to get his own film and this was supposed to be spun off that way, which would have been fine. Um, yeah. you know, you know, an entire movie of just a black costume Spider-Man fighting Sandman, who he believes is the responsible for the death of his uncle Ben, would have been fine. I mean, I wanted to see what that script was supposed to have been. You know, what what was the, what was it originally supposed to be? Was Venom just never going to show up until like a post-credit scene kind of thing? Yeah, that would have been. I, I mean, and it's one of those things where now it's like, are we ever going to see that stuff? Will it ever leak? Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's plenty about Spider-Man 4 is leaked, obviously, again, with the Vulture, and Black Cat was going to be his daughter, which is going to be a change, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we were going to get Mysterio, played by uh, Bruce Campbell. That that has been very much <laughs> confirmed by even Bruce himself. Um, and then, like, you know, the, the, the rumors of Spider-Man 4, and then very little that there would have been known about it, other than Sam wanted to make 4 and 5 back-to-back, but the budget would have been crazy, is 5 eventually became the plot line for The Amazing Spider-Man with the lizard. Right. Because you'd built up Kurt Connors now for three films or whatever with his missing arm, so that would have been cool to have the lizard. Also, a lizard that looks like the lizard and not a Goomba. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry. It looks like a Goomba, for God's sakes, with a tail. Yeah. <laughs> I want that lizard snout. I mean, I, I, <laughs> the lizard is supposed to have this like beak, you know, like a yeah. crocodile or alligator or a sal or a or a, a gecko or something. Not a not a round human head. That just oh, that always just annoys me. <laughs> or, like a, or like a raptor from Jurassic Park. You know, have him wear the coat and everything. You know, in the pants. You know, make him look like semi-human. Uh, at least they gave him the voice, which is totally fine. But uh, you know, the absence of Billy and Martha and any of the films has also been disappointing. You know, not even a mention of having a wife and kid who are really important. Um, yeah. I mean, you could have gone super. You could have had super. You could have gone super dark and had the lizard eat his son like he did in the comics. That would have been. That I don't know if Sony would go for that. <laughs> but he brought his son back, and he's like a lizard boy. And there was this, there was this great plot line where Craven the Hunter and a bunch of other hunters gathered up all of the animal villains and heroes of the Marvel universe and put them in like a like a camp in in Central Park and said, "Go hunt them." And uh, the lizard's son got trapped as well. And Black Cat, uh, with the help of Spider Man, had to go in and find Billy. Wow. Yeah, well, maybe someday you could pitch that to Sony. <laughs> right, and and oh, and what happened to um to his wife is that uh the pharma- some pharmaceutical company uh poisoned the water 
and she drank it and gave her cancer and she died. Oh dear lord, is that dark. Yes. Um, speaking of dark, the most notorious Spider-Man story of all time is returning, uh, Spider-Man Reign. And in this story, it's set like, you know, years in the future, and Spider-Man's in his 70s or so. Most of his villains are dead or reanimated corpses. And we learned the fate of Mary Jane is that they, the doctors couldn't figure out why her entire body was riddled with cancer, radioactive yeah. cancer. And then it's revealed by Peter it's because he had sex with her. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite Spider-Man books of all time. You get off this podcast. What is wrong with you? That is horrible. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that book. Oh, <laughs> They're never going to make that into a movie. <laughs> Probably not, no. Um, you just see like Zendaya dying on the hospital bed with Tom, old man Tom Holland being like, I can't understand why you're dying! <laughs> And he, she whispers something in his ear, and his shock of look in the audience is just like, ew. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> Spe- speaking of dark Spider-Man. So this music in this uh, by Christopher Young, uh, I said before previously, is probably my favorite of the opening Spider-Man music theme songs. I didn't say it was the entire score was my favorite, but the opening song, which is used later on in one of the other tracks that um, I have available to me to listen to. Um, And it goes from the more commonly used uh, Danny Elfman theme song of Spider-Man to this like really menacing theme, which is indicative of when Spider-Man finds himself hanging upside down, staring at himself in a skyscraper, which is straight out of the Spider-Man 90s cartoon series. Um, after having a dream nightmare of him being pulled back and forth between the blue costume and the the black costume, which in the comic books that happens in the last issue prior to him going off to going to uh, excuse me the Baxter Building and contacting Reed Richards and being like, hey, can you like take a look at this thing because you said you were going to and I finally have some time in all my adventures and he says it's an alien symbiote that's trying to bond with you. Get it off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have the music. Hold on one second. Uh, the music right here, the opening theme or whatever, that transitions into this like just more darker tone. There's the more familiar... And then right on a dime... It changes. And you hear this when Spider-Man is swinging through the streets of New York, New York, whatever, with his newfound, like, just grace and ability and the speed he's probably going at. is nothing he's ever felt before. And he's, like, you know, he's hanging on to the side of the building and, like, flexing his arms. And Peter takes the mask off and he's just like, this is so cool. Because it's just basically giving him, like, this, this like, insane adrenaline rush. And then he goes after Sandman. Yeah, and, and you hear it in the opening credits because Danny established the tradition on the second film of playing the other themes, you know, because the second film 
in the main title, it goes from Spider-Man and Peter's theme to Doc Ock's theme, and then it goes back to Spider-Man and Peter's theme again. So Chris basically continues the same thing with the opening titles of Spider-Man 3. He introduces us to Black Suit Spider-Man's theme uh, and Sandman's theme. But interestingly enough, he doesn't give us any of the Venom theme. He he just kind of held on to that until the third act of the film. Right, and the birth of the Sandman also has a really... Um, like beautiful melody, and I know a lot of people talked about like the the creation of the Sandman is just one of the best sequences in the film. In fact, the Sandman in general, his special effects completely still hold up today. Um, yeah. Sandman would return in Spider-Man No Way Home. However, I don't understand why they kept him in sand mode the entire time. Is it because they didn't have the actor available because of COVID? You know, I I have no idea what the real reason is. I always assumed it was just because it was just cheaper to use animations of Sandman that they had kind of existing in their special effects library rather than to have Thomas Hayden Church on set. That was, you know, that's what I understand it to be, but, or and, that's what I understood it to be, sorry, but I don't know if that's actually the case. I, I, I no idea. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Spider, I mean, the Sandman and, Vul- and uh, not Vulture, um, God, we could only, we only have wished Vulture was in that movie. Uh, we would have had the Sinister Six. Uh, <laughs> we had the Sinister Five. What was that about, too? I want, I want to hear that story as well. Why didn't we get the Sinister Six? Is it because Spider-Man's his own worst enemy? Is that the Sinister Six? Is that the message you're trying to tell us, Mark Webb? <laughs> uh, but I digress. Uh, let's face it, people wanted to see Michael Keaton back as the Vulture. But anyway, he might have been busy doing uh, Batman stuff. <laughs> the music that accompanies the Sandman's theme song is playing right now, and it is... It's beautiful because it's just this transition of like him like as a pile of sand and trying to form his body again. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's it's one of the I think most beautiful things Chris has ever written. And when I actually when I met him for the first time, I told him what a huge fan I was of Hellraiser, how that's one of my top ten scores of all time, but that I think the most beautiful thing he ever wrote was that track from Spider Man three and he was very he was very uh, touched by that. We were, oh, that's right. I, I really wanted to see if Chris would come on this episode with us, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's a busy man now, apparently. Yeah. He's hard, he's hard to pin down. That sucks. I would have really liked to have had him on this show if he doesn't have any hard misgivings about the fact that score can't get released. Um, there's, a, I guess, an alternate, open, alternate birth of Sandman as well. A lot of times there's going to be alternate takes on the different music. The right. Spider-Man saving Gwen from the skyscraper scene is basically just the Spider-Man theme song for the movies. Right. Harry Osborn has his own theme, but I wasn't really hung up on it too much, mainly because uh, Ski Mask Goblin doesn't make any sense to me. I don't even understand why he's called a goblin. He does not look like a goblin. He looks like a guy in a ski mask on a flying skateboard. He looks like a, he looks like a guy from uh, X Games competitions. I do not get that at all. I hate that design. I hate that design more so than I hate uh, Norman Osborn's design because I see, I've seen the original Norman Osborn Green Goblin design. You know, once again, if Sam had gotten his way, it, it, and this is the other thing about this film. Let's just stick to this film. I mean, you think after two successfully blockbuster Spider-Man movies that Sam Raimi would have just been left alone to make this movie the way he wanted to? Yeah, you would think. But toys need to sell toys. I mean, Toy Biz needs to sell toys, and we needed a Venom toy, even though, by the way, I'm going to point out the Venom toy is one of the worst toys ever made in the history of Venom toys is from this movie. It's a purple toy. What color is Venom, Leto? 
black. Well, why is it a purple toy? <laughs> no idea. Are you it's, talking about the action figure there? Yes, were? the action figure for this movie for Venom is a purple Venom. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's Phage. <laughs> it, just, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Just like t- casting Topher Grace as Eddie Brock doesn't make any sense. And, and also, I mean, t- uh, Tom uh, Harding, whatever his name is, as Venom... As Eddie Brock doesn't make any sense either, considering if you read anything about the Venom comics or whatever, the whole story about how he's created. I mean, yes, in the movie he plagiarizes a photograph, uh, and Jameson, despite all of his you know uh, BS against Spider-Man, he won't print uh, plagiarism, even though he prints untrue things about Spider-Man all the time, <laughs> and uh, that is what gets him fired. And he wants to he prays to God that he kills Peter Parker in the comic books. The uh, Daredevil and Spider-Man had stopped a serial killer called the Sin Eater, but prior to that, Eddie Brock, for another newspaper, the Daily Globe, printed the article about the other Sin Eater, and it was a false story that it was a copycat who had deranged delusions of grandeur and didn't actually kill anybody. He was just a mental patient. He was living next door to the guy who was the Sin Eater and hearing his conversations, and his mental state was so messed up, he made himself believe he was the Sin Eater, so he turned himself over. And when Eddie Brock's uh, story got uh, destroyed by Daredevil and Spider-Man, he went on a quest to hate Spider-Man. And then eventually it would lead him to the bell tower where he finds Spider-Man's uh, symbiote dying from the bell, the bell gongs. And they merge right. and become Venom. They become Venom. The symbiote is never called Venom. In the Spider-Man 3 movie, and not get into the Venom film too, too much, the vet, that we never learn the origin of the symbiote. Now, when no. he is wearing the Venom mask, he looks like Venom. But for some dumb reason, we have to have the actor's face being shown so they can get paid. Is this like a union thing? I don't even know if it's a union thing. I think it's uh, it was just an edict from the producers. From what <sighs> I've heard, from what I've heard, that's the reason why. If you notice in all the Raimi films and in the the newer films too, the Garfield films and the Holland films, if you notice in the third act, Spider-Man's often unmasked or his mask is destroyed to the point where you're seeing like eighty percent of his face. Yeah. They wanted to be able to see the actor's face, and I don't know if it's just the producers, or maybe it's the producers and the actor's agent, or who knows, but it's one of those things where it's like, just leave the damn mask on. Like, we know who's underneath the mask. Like, What did you think of the music for the Broadway show? Uh, you mean the song that MJ sings? Right, and they're also playing the isolated track right now from Broadway, but yeah, the song that MJ sings. Yeah, I mean... I think it's fine. I mean, it's it's only probably 30 seconds out of the film, so it you know it does what it needs to do. Um, it's kind of cheesy, but I mean, it's a Broadway musical, so that's not any. It doesn't seem out of place or anything. Now, what's the song MJ sings at the diner? Uh, she was gonna sing "Fever." You give me fever. Is that on the soundtrack? I'm not sure it is on the soundtrack. I don't think it is, actually. Uh, there's 16 songs on the soundtrack. When we get to it, I don't see that song on there. So, Yeah, I don't think it's included. I guess she didn't get to sing enough of it for them to include it. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Now, is that actually Kristen Stewart, or, sorry, Kristen, Kristen Dunst uh, singing that? I don't think it is, but I wouldn't be surprised if it actually was her. Now, Harry is also, like, at the opera... No, he's at the play, watching Peter from the balcony, from his, yes. like, expensive seats, because he's, you know, head of industry Oscorp guy. Okay, and that's the that that's the, the song from the Broadway that we hear. Yes, and actually, as it turns out, I just looked it up, that actually is Kirsten Dunst singing in, um, in um, 
Spider-Man 3. There's, I'm not sure what the name of the song is. I thought, I'm sorry, I thought you were referencing the song in the diner. Oh, I'm referencing both. Yeah, sorry. So, I'm, um, because those are two MJ's big, like, chorus signs, you know, yeah. singing, singing scenes. She's, she's on the Broadway and she's singing, and Peter's, like, mouthing the words, and, and Harry is just ogling Peter, being like, Oh, I'm gonna so kill you! You killed my dad! I hate you! I have no reason to hate you! Why do I believe you killed my dad? You know, just, Jesus Christ, they could have developed that better. Uh, <laughs> And then it takes forever for that old man to be like, I've seen things in this house, Harry. FYI, there's an edited version of Spider-Man 3 I don't recommend because that entire scene with the uh, butler is completely cut out. And it it's like Harry just like feels bad seeing Spider-Man getting his ass handed to him by Venom and Sandman. He's like, all right, might as well go help my friend. Whereas like in the actual version of the movie... He gets the speech from his dad saying, I cleaned your dad's wounds. He was impaled by his own glider. I've kept it secret because I didn't think you were going to go down this path, but now I've noticed you've gone down the path that you weren't supposed to. So I need to tell you, your friends love you and you don't, do not follow your dad's path. Your dad was a madman. Thank God for the, for the butler. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God for the butler. I'm trying to like think of the death toll of Harry Osborn. He didn't kill anybody in the movie, right? As far as we can tell. But as Norman, far as we see, no. Right. So, but Norman killed uh, Mendel Strom, who was the scientist helping him at the beginning of the movie, as well mm-hmm. as the what four or five board members on the rooftop. And then he kills all the people that are in the bunker watching the flight test. Yes. So there was uh, probably a half dozen people in the flight test bunker, and then whoever else was killed in casualty due to like falling debris that Stan Lee didn't save. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, through the three films, Harry doesn't kill anybody. Although he put, does put people in harm's way by sending Ock, Doc, Ock after um, Peter and MJ. Um, yes. So indirectly responsible for killing people that way if Doc Ock killed anybody that we didn't see. Uh, Norman would add uh, at least one more person to his death toll in No Way Home, um, which if you haven't seen, I won't spoil until we get, I get to that movie. So, yes. Which Good is man. the most impactful death that Norman Osborn could pull off. Now, Harry, in another film series, would kill a few people as well. Uh, when he's played by uh, Dane, what's his face? Dane DeHane. Or yes, Dane DeHane. Which, by the way, I liked the the friendly back and forth in that a little bit more than these films because Harry is just like on a revenge hatred of Spider-Man. And um, let me point out something that is also indicative of Norman Osborn's bull, you know, bullshittery in the Spider-Man mm. story life story. Have you ever read this? Uh, I don't think so. You need to read this and purge from your head the dark Spider-Man stories, because this is the best written Spider-Man story by far, by a lot of people's uh, opinions, in years. It came out just before the pandemic. It's called uh, Life Story, and every issue, six issues, and every issue takes place in a different decade in Spider-Man's life in real time. Oh, cool. What else do you have to say about the soundtrack, uh, the, sorry, the score, which again, it's like 89 tracks, including the unused alternative stuff as well. I really, I think that Chris did a really great job considering the kind of impossible task he was given. I mean, it's really hard for a composer like him, who is an incredible composer, but less of a household name than Danny Elfman. I think it's hard for someone to step into those shoes because I think the public is, you know, I've I've actually, I did some research on the film before our podcast and... I was reading about people talking about Danny being replaced right before this film came out, and people there were actually people online that were like, who's this Chris Young guy? What's he ever done? And it it made me kind of sad, because it's like, 
Christopher Young is not like a nobody. Like he's done a ton of stuff and he's been around for decades. Like how do people not know who this guy is? So I heard the I, same thing when it came to Alan Silvestri and people did not know his like his music when he was doing uh, all the Marvel stuff he's done and whatever. You know what I mean? The Captain America movies and, and, and the uh the Avenger films and I'm just like, Are you serious? This guy is the guy from Back to the Future. Yeah, and Forrest Gump. Like, how do you miss that? Right. I mean, it's probably Back to the Future is probably his biggest claim to fame. You know what I mean? Just because of how oh, iconic yeah. that trilogy of films is. And yes, Forrest Gump is big, but I hear much more praise about people being able to watch Back to the Future than watching uh, Forrest Gump. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Like, I would show my child uh, Back to the Future before I ever show them Forrest Gump, just because I, I would need yeah. some context and he'd need to be older, but I can show a five-year-old Back to the Future. Right, more or less five, six, seven, eight, maybe. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, I think he did an admirable job. I mean, in the third act, when they're when they're having the big battle towards the end, I think he does an amazing job of using you know four different themes. He's got the the Venom theme, Sandman, Spider Man, and the Green Goblin theme, and he's like he's alternating between them all, and he's utilizing them when they make sense visually, when they make sense thematically, and. I think he does a great job. I I wish I wish this score had a release so that people could realize that he really did himself proud. But fingers crossed that it happens someday. Um, do we know what the name of the song was that was played during Peter's proposal to MJ? Oh goodness, no idea. You talking about the one? Or are you talking about the one that they play uh, the violin players in the restaurant? Yes. It's the same song that uh, she sings when she's coming down the staircase. Oh, did Peter set that up or whatever? Not knowing she yeah. got fired? <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they really set up Peter to be doing all the wrong things, you know what I mean? Like, they, when, they even do. when he's trying to relate to her problems and going, oh, this happens all the time. One time when I'm a Spider-Man, she's like, this isn't about you. This is about me. And I'm like, yeah. there's no, no. I mean, his life as Spider-Man is kind of shit, lady. I mean, you got fired from a job. Uh, whoop-de-doo. His life as Spider-Man man is constantly in danger if that's what he's got to relate to because he's got nothing as peter parker you know calm your jets and shut the fuck up <laughs> i never i never liked that 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 just i like the character of mary jane through the films sometimes and then there were times i didn't and one of the biggest contractions of mary jane from any of the versions whether it be zadaya or this one she is not the party animal girl that's hiding the darkness in her family She's just mopey all the time, or she's carefree, but it's just not enough to put off the, the fact that her dad's a piece of crap, and her mom's dying, and her sister got pregnant with kids when she wasn't old enough to be, and that's why she kind of lives with her aunt. That's the whole backstory of Mary Jane that is so much better they've never done in these films before. Yeah, well, again. And that's the story about why, she, like, in the, right after the, clone, the, the, sorry, the, the Black Symbiote saga ended, she comes to Peter or whatever and says, Peter, there's something I have got to tell you. And he's like, well, thank God, there's something i got to tell you, too. You know, I, I want to explain why I've been such a jerkweed and stuff like that. You know, he doesn't tell her about the black costume until she says, Peter, I need to get this out right now. I've known for years that you are Spider-Man. And dun, dun, dun. And the next issue, she finally explains her origin story to everybody. You know, she, she explains how, like, her sister got, you know, her dad left their family after mom died and her sister got pregnant or whatever. And then her, her husband left him. And she's basically got, like, two kids and, like, nobody. And she's like, don't worry, Mary Jane. We'll do this together and raise the kids. And Mary Jane's like, no. I, I want to go to college and, and be an actress and a model. I don't want to raise your children with you. And she runs away. Wow. And it's not till years later when uh, she um, she she ditch she turns down Peter's proposal 
her father has embezzled all this money and blamed it on her sister, and she's got to go to Philadelphia to clear her sister's name. And Spider and Peter goes after her because she abruptly just leaves after the marriage proposal's turned down. And um, while little does he know, he's being tracked by uh, Spencer Smythe, the Spider Slayer. And they find the evidence to clear her sister's name and uh, uh, imprison her father. And also Spider-Man beats uh, Smythe within an inch of his life when he picks up Mary Jane and is about to punch her in the face with his robotic arm. And he, like, clobbers clobbers this robot and rips it apart with his bare hands or whatever. And, And Smythe, by the way, is a crippled in a wheelchair using the robot to get around. And then later on, after her sister's cleared and everything's good and she's reunited, her sister's reunited with her kids and her dad's off to prison or whatever, she's like, I've changed my mind, Peter. Yes, I will marry you. And then it's the, the wedding issue, which, of course, gets retconned out of continuity by Mephisto. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that's, that's a whole history of Spider-Man right there, everybody. So now we're going to talk about the soundtrack to Spider-Man 3, which there was a soundtrack. It had 16 songs on it, including bands like Single Fire, uh, sorry, Snow Patrol, The Killers, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Wolf Mother, Beef Streaks, The Walkman, Black Mountain, The Flaming Lips, Simon Dawes, Chubby Checker, Rogue Wave, Coconut Records, Jet, Sound Under Radio, The Wyos, and The Ulas. And the only person on this soundtrack I recognize is Chubby Checker, the the twist, because it's the song played in the movie when Harry and MJ are cooking. This scene did not need to be in the movie, by the way. <laughs> Talk about why this movie is so long. This is one of the scenes a lot of people agree could have been completely cut out. It does not advance the plot line. It does not advance... Uh, and Harry is still a good guy at this point in the film. He has not been turned back into his evil self. You know what I mean? It's just right. two people hanging out and... I'm like, if, if Peter is not in the scene with them, then it did not need to be there. Now, if Peter was there, that would have been fine. What if, like, Peter brought Gwen along to try and hook him up with, hook her up with Harry? That would have been cool, too. Yeah. But I digress. Thank God Bryce Dallas Howard went on to bigger and better things, like directing episodes of The Mandalorian and becoming an accomplished filmmaker herself, like her father. <laughs> yeah. There is a great song in here I want to point out. Single Fire's Snow Patrol has a music video of a bunch of kids at an elementary school putting on a play of the first two Spider-Man movies. That is their music video. And it's adorable. It's a bunch of parents sitting down at the elementary school. And tonight, Spider-Man presented by 2C, which I'm assuming is like second graders because they look like they're second graders. There's a kid dressed like like a spider who comes down to bite Peter. There's a girl dressed like Gwen. The kid dressed like Peter starts like writhing in bed, you know, and then he's got his goofy, cute little Halloween mom made it Spider Man costume, kind of like the one that the kid wears in Amazing Spider Man Two when he fights the Rhino, mm-hmm. which is adorable. <laughs> I love that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very cute. So that's what it looks like. There's a kid dressed like the Green Goblin on a skateboard with like fog behind him, and he grabs Mary Jane and then gets like a net thrown on him. Um, and then a guy, a kid shows up with six arms and is supposed to be Doc Ock and he's fighting Spider-Man like in the shadow and it, and they're on what appears to be like the shadows are moving back and forth because it's supposed to be Spider-Man fighting Doc Ock on the train. Oh, I love that. Right. That's, that's adorable. <laughs> and Spider-Man does hang upside down and get a kiss from the girl Aww. at the very end. Of course he does. Yeah. If this was an actual school play, I'd give it all the credit in the world to the to the uh, the school teacher if she pulled this off. Good job, lady. One of the other bands on here I point out is called Rogue Wave. They're an indie rock band from Oakland, California, headed by Zach Schwartz. Created the band after he lost his job in the dot com bust. Wow. 
That's that's unfortunate. <laughs> Glad he found traction somewhere else. Right. There's a band. The band called Wolf Mother. Pleased to meet you. Um, that that just has a unique name, Wolf Mother. Um, mm-hmm. Again, they're they're an Australian rock band from Sydney, formed in 2005. Doesn't say if they're still around or not. Did they make it past the debacle of Spider-Man Three? <laughs> I mean, I I guess so. I assume so. You know, it's. Uh, if you look at wow, the, there's the, a lot. Oh, gee, that's right. I forgot. Uh, Australia, New Zealand. Like, uh, isn't isn't Sam Raimi production company from New Zealand? I think perhaps. I'm not sure. Let's look. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he he makes a lot of stuff in New Zealand. Like the Ash vs. Evil Dead show was made in New Zealand. Xena and Hercules were made in New Zealand. Well, let's find let's find out. Possibly, I'm not sure. Actually, isn't New Zealand? Um, isn't uh, what, what's the name of his production company that shows up in every one of the films? Renaissance Pictures. That's it, yeah. So that is, yeah. that is like, you know, and you see that show up again with Hercules, Xena, Ash versus the Evil Dead. And New Zealand is not part of Australia, right? It's like off the coast of Australia? Yes. Okay. So that might be why he has a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, bands from uh, Australia in the soundtrack. Possibly. Or it could be a cost thing. Maybe they were cheaper. True. But if you look at the history of the soundtrack, it actually says that the, the concept of the soundtrack was that each song was written exclusively for the soundtrack, with the exception of the Flaming Lips' uh, version of Spider-Man and then uh, Chubby Checker's song. Wait, so there was, a, there, was a, there was the Spider-Man theme song in here? The Spider-Man does whatever a spider can? Supposedly, it says uh, there was a theme version from the, the, of the Spider-Man spider-man theme that was covered by the flaming lips but i don't know if it's included on the cd itself it looks like it's only available uh there's a special edition of the album on which it's available and the song is called spider-man versus muhammad ali it says according to a wiki it says it's just called the theme from spider-man by the flaming lips yeah on google it's called spider-man versus muhammad ali that's very odd by the flaming lips see if i can play it Only available Only available on the deluxe edition of Spider-Man 3 soundtrack, by the way. It's an electro-fuck rendition of the Spider-Man theme by the Flaming Lips. Yeah. But, again, it's also called Spider-Man vs. Muhammad Ali. Okay, then. <laughs> Is this played in the movie? Is this in the jazz club? Possibly. I'd have to... I'd have to do a little digging to find out. By the way, Renaissance Pictures is an American production company. Yeah, it sounds okay. Um, I think the title Spider-Man vs. Muhammad Ali is supposed to be an homage to uh, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali, which was an actual comic book that happened. Yeah, probably. At the height of Muhammad Ali's popularity, because Muhammad Ali was like the greatest athlete who ever lived at one point. Yes. By the way, did you did you hear uh, Renaissance Pictures is an American production company? Oh, it's an American production. Well, he is American too, but I know he and films they, a lot in New Zealand, so that's what I mean. Right. Meant. Yeah, and they and they have changed their name now from Renaissance Pictures to Raimi Productions. Oh, interesting. I wonder why. I mean, does it have anything to do with like you know the you know what he's been doing lately with you know studios and stuff like you know. Uh... Now, what's funny is that earlier we talked about how there was a uh, falling out between Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi, right? Yes. How did that get repaired for Danny Elfman to do the music? Didn't Oz, Danny Elfman do the music for Doctor Strange? He did, but before that, he also did the music for Oz the Great and Powerful. Okay, how did they patch up? 
So I don't know what the real story is. I supposedly the story is that they reconciled in 2011. Okay. And I'm assuming that they just buried the hatchet. There's a lot if you if you do some digging on this film about the music side of it, there are a lot of different stories. There's an interview with John Burlingham and Christopher Young that's fantastic where Chris talks about what happened on the picture uh, you know, Spider-Man 2, and then, of course, he talks about how he got Spider-Man 3 in his process. But, like, there are a lot of different stories, and some of them kind of clash with each other. So it's it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think anybody is really going to know what happened unless they were directly involved in the situation. Uh, another band I want to point out, they are called Simon Dawes. It was a rock band originally from Malibu, California. And the band signed with the record collection and the released debut album uh, Carnivore in 2006. And then they got into the album for Spider-Man 3 in 2007. Um, now, the songs that you said uh, are indicative of something in the movie. Pleased to Meet You, Ceiling, Stay Free, The Supreme Being Teaches uh, Spider-Man How to Be in Love. That's, a, that's the Flaming Lips song. Sightlines, Letter to St. Jude. Uh, Portrait of a Summer Thief. Hmm. I don't remember hearing a lot of these songs in the film itself, unless it was like no. background sound, which which could be like on someone's, like they're on the on the subway, they're walking through New York, and you hear a song. What is the song that Peter dances to during the famous, irritating dance sequence in Spider-Man Three? The thing that really made people lose their crap. <laughs> that scene gets so much hate. <laughs> It should! It's terrible! It's funny. It's so funny. No! It's ridiculous. When he's, like, walking through the streets or whatever, they said, this is what it actually would be like for somebody in New York seeing Peter do this, and you just hear the noise of the bustle and the the horns of New York or whatever, and Peter just walking through the streets without the music. He looks like a crazy person. Now, I would much rather have him, Peter, just, like, roughing people up left and right, whatever, as the symbiote's rage takes him over. But no, this whole stupid thing he does... You know, and then of course it ends with like the club and him bringing Gwen there and him smacking Mary Jane by mistake. Not really smacking her, but pushing her aside. Your shots are so good. I'd love to shoot you sometime. Peter Parker. Peter. Miss Brent? That's not the position I hired you for. Black suit Spider-Man. Peter, these are incredible. You gotta have these, Jonah. I'll pay you the usual rate. If you want the shots, I'll take the staff job. Double the money. And also, isn't uh, the meme of Peter dancing, gyrating his hips, also seen against uh, right next to the Joker dancing on the steps? <laughs> Joker. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's. I was gonna say it's funny for a scene that gets as much hate as it does. It's become such an iconic part of our pop culture that it's like at this point, I just think it's really funny. But you asked about the what the song was. Apparently, it's a song called "People Get Up and Drive Your Funky Soul" by James Brown. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard before this I didn't know anything about her and the only thing I'd ever seen her in was that movie where it's the water fairy you know directed by M. Night Shyamalan and it's got Paul Giamatti in it so you know two Spider-Man connections right there uh, the Rhino and Gwen Stacy 
I like the fact that they gave her the police dad, played by James Cromwell. You know what I mean? So that's, there's that connection. Her dad is a cop. Yeah. And she looked like Gwen Stacy. I mean, they made her look beautiful in this movie. And I did not hang my hat on like her looks or whatever until I saw her in this film. And I was like, damn, did they make her look hot. I was going to say, I always thought she was a really attractive young lady. But, um, yeah, she's, they definitely gave her the Gwen Stacy look like almost to a T. It was kind of crazy. I mean, I think they also did that with Emma Stone in... Um, her version of Spider-Man, I thought she was... Okay, pretty, but, pretty but here, here's the thing, here's the big problem I have with the casting of all these females. What is, what is Bryce's natural hair cutter? I think she's a redhead, isn't she? Okay, what is Kristen Dunst's natural hair color? I don't know, she's a blonde. Correct, she? correct. And she's playing a redhead in three films, in, sometimes in a dye, sometimes in a wig, and then back to a dye, I think, because they tried the wig, I think, and then they were like, now let's just do the dye. And then Bryce is wearing, obviously, a wig. <laughs> that, that's not naturally blonde hair. And then you have Emma Stone, who's also a natural redhead, playing a blonde. <laughs> and then you have Zendaya. Doesn't look anything like Mary Jane whatsoever from the comic books. <laughs> father. And this is father's just like, kind of ignores him, you know? Oh, dad's not here to pick me up? It's just you? Oh, I have no family. I'm a loser. You know, things like that. Right. But I project my anger out on Peter Parker by making fun of him. Right. I did have the clip up of the of the Spider-Man um, dance sequence in the club. Hold on. Now dig on this. Oh, me too. Do you want to go someplace else? Be okay. I'll be right back. This is for you. This is for you because I saw you make out with my best friend. <laughs> Double time. Now dig on this. When he's like snapping his fingers, all reminded of is that scene from the third Austin Power movie where they're doing the dance montage and they're like snapping their fingers as they're moving along. Because <laughs> of how ridiculously corny it is. It is that. I definitely think they obviously um, made the scene as like charmingly romantic, seductive uh, as they could with like Gwen and Peter dancing. But I understand why trying to do the plot line like they did in the fourth film. Fourth film if it, another love triangle with, like, Black Cat and Mary Jane would have been like, we're doing this again? Didn't we do a love triangle in the second film, too? Now we're doing a love triangle in the third film? And we're doing yeah, a love triangle been, in the fourth film? It would have been too much. Right. I digress back to the song. There's one more song I want to point out. It's called Scared of Myself by Simon Dawes. I want to play a clip of it here. And now this song, I completely understand why it's in the soundtrack, because of the fact that Peter is scared of himself. After what happens at the nightclub, he's completely scared of himself and his powers. Right. I would also point out when I first heard the twist, I probably heard it when I was a kid, 
The best use of the twist, in my opinion, is an episode of Quantum Leap where Chubby Checker actually plays himself and shows up at the radio station uh, trying to get his newest album, his new his new uh, record played on the radio. And Sam has to point out to Al that this is Chubby Checker. He's like, who? The twist. Come on, baby. And they play the twist like a couple times in the episode. And again, Chubby That's Checker awesome. does play himself in that episode because Sam's in the 1950s as a rock DJ at a time that rock and roll was being banned on the airways because of it being believed to be corrupting the youth. That's awesome. I love that. I love that show, actually. Yeah, I have not watched the new show, so and I don't have any opinions or comments about it. I just haven't, I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. So I know it's gotten renewed for a third season, um, obviously pending the writers and actors strike. So again, as the only song on the soundtrack that I even recognize, and I do not own the soundtrack. I got it. I, I was able to play it mostly on YouTube um, through the band's individual YouTube pages, which is really nice. The bands all have their own individual YouTube pages. So if you want to take a look at it, definitely. And you can also watch that music video, the elementary school I was talking about. Do you have any other more comments about the soundtrack? Not really, except for that. It's, it was again, one of those things that they did back in the day to try and like ramp up interest for the film. And, you know, I guess it worked well enough, but it's not like any of the songs have really become those big hits or anything. Right. And I mean, the only one on there that was a hit prior, we you know we just got done talking about. So right, um, right. it's it's kind of funny. Um, I was just looking through the IMDb of all the different uh, people involved with the uh, the score for the movie, and there was one person you mentioned before, Deborah Lurie. Deborah Lurie, yeah. Also did music uh, was part of the music department, uh, so it, was, it means they're they're involved in the music. They're not the composer, but the last Marvel film they worked on was Captain Marvel. Yes, so she she's apparently was an assistant to both Chris and Danny at one point in time. I'm not I'm not sure for what. I didn't do enough digging to get into that, but apparently she had worked with both of them before she came on to the Spider-Man series. And she also was in the choir for um, the X-Files Halloween H2O 20 years later, which is, uh, by the way, celebrating an anniversary this year, um, yep. 25th anniversary, um, X-Men 2, um, Spider-Man 3, like we said, Hall uh, Hellboy 2, and Men in Black 3, so all comic book related. But the last thing uh, she was working on was, uh, well, one of the last things she worked on was uh, Captain Marvel. I don't know what else she's been doing lately. And then there was another name, uh, John Debney also worked yes. on this. John yes. Debney, um, who I do recognize as well, worked Big on... Big-time composer. Yeah, he was the composer for Iron Man 2, and yep. um, so one of the beginnings of the MCU, which I just also want to point out that Spider-Man came out, Spider-Man 3 came out in 2007, and we thought this was going to be, yeah, the movie made a lot of money, but let's face it, the critics slandered the movie, and a lot of fans left the film going, eh. And we thought this was the end of comic book movies, but a year later we would have Iron Man come out and you know start the MCU. So it's funny to think that the film that, had been the end of the first wave of comic book movies had come out because let's face it, X Men Three had just come out as well the year before. That didn't do very well. Superman Returns came out. That didn't do very well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you see the trend that we're doing? And then yeah. and then Spider Man Three was the like the hopefully saving grace, and that didn't do very well or did well financially, but you know what I'm saying? Backlash. Right. And then the following year we have Iron Man and the Dark Knight. Right. By the way, this composer, um, I, I did recognize his name. He's the composer for I Know What You Did Last Summer, one of my favorite slasher movies. But he was also the composer for the god-awful Justice League of America made-for-TV movie. Interesting. <laughs> it is a terrible movie you can watch on YouTube. Um, but I, as say, I, have not, I have not seen it. Do not watch it. <laughs> 
let's just say it's I, I would hold Zack Snyder's Justice League cut above it. <laughs> wow. I am very familiar with uh, John Debney's work on uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I actually think that's one of the best horror scores ever written. I don't think that has a release, though. It does not. <laughs> but uh, I managed to get my hands on a copy, let's just say. Okay. Why don't we say our goodbyes and... Uh... Okay. Say farewell to farewell to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, um, Lito, why don't you give away where people can find you? You can go to LitoVelasco.com and you can find me there. And you can find me over in the Spidey Dude Radio Network as well, doing the Sal Basema Era podcast. And I am there um, every other week with a new episode of Sal Basema. And you can find me also on Radio of Horror on Sunday nights where I do play music. And I will probably play the score for Spider-Man 3 at some point. Maybe not its entirety because it's like so many tracks. But <laughs> And I will be back um, with a, uh, another guest coming up for The Amazing Spider-Man, the first movie, its score and soundtrack, here on Web of Music on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Web. Shots are so good. I'd love to shoot you sometime. Peter Parker. <laughs>